The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. This is Dudley. Great to be back with you again. Hey, two or three things. <laughs> Always two or three things, right? Shorty. The book Shorty. It's a children's book that I wrote about this time last year. It'll be a great Christmas present to give to your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, whatever. It is also good for your husband, by the way. He will probably actually understand that one. Uh, sorry, no offense, boys. Seriously, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good children's book. It's the gospel. It's the gospel put in a, in a story that the kids can understand. It's the gospel from the point of view of the uh, ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain to, to, make, to worship. So get that. Get a bunch of them and give them away and you'll be blessing a lot of people. The other thing is, uh, if you have not registered for this year's Kerygma Family Reunion, uh, let me encourage you just to ask, just ask the Lord if it, if you can go. <laughs> if you do, you will not be disappointed. It, it's a money back guarantee thing that it will be a highlight in your year and could be in your life. Uh, we've been doing this since the mid seventies. It is a spiritual family reunion, not just a hall family reunion, though there are some halls that are spiritual. And uh, it's, it's great to be both. But these are, are, are men and women, boys and girls, who have a common father and have a common life. And the worship is fabulous. The, the, the teaching on the gospel and its ramifications are, are great. We have something for the kids, something for the young people, something for the the, the real young, something for everybody. And uh, even those who want to watch the uh, SEC championship game or whatever's on, there are big screen televisions everywhere. It's a very nice facility in Talladega, Alabama, Shaco Springs Assembly. You'll need to go to the website. Go to kerygmaventures.com and register, or you can call the office. While you're at the re- at the website, you'll find that there are several. We have lots of material, lots of things whereby you can uh, get a hold of our material, and you can contact and touch us, touch what we have. We believe that what we're doing, what we're sharing, is a uh, is a message for the time, and so uh, take advantage of that. While you're there, would you consider becoming a uh, an investor with us? I I wish I had I, it, it, part of me a, a part of me wishes that I were independently wealthy and I would never need to ask anybody to help. The other part of me knows that that's not God's particular plan. He likes for the children to help each other, and I believe we have a father who is independently wealthy, but he uses his children to give to each other to invest with each other. One of the ways God has that is when you're taught by some someone, you are to share with the one who taught you. Uh, I've been trying to practice that in my life for those institutions that taught me, those individuals that taught me. I want to invest back. That's my privilege as well as my responsibility. And I, I ask you to do that same thing. You may want to uh, go go on there and sign up to do be a regular monthly contributor by withdrawals or if you are, are one who can control your credit cards, you might can put it on a credit card, but I do not want you to go in debt. You may want to give a, a, one, a one-time large or small sum, but I would really like for you to uh, 
to become a part of what we're doing, we need you. I, I don't make any uh, bones about it. Uh, I need you. We need you to help us. So do that if you will. Okay, this uh, this month I want to talk to you uh, about, well, the title is Beyond Mere Morality. Real Christianity is different from just morality, from from having good good people. Uh, let me see if I can set it up for you. The, there's a collective angst and anxiety in our culture regarding the loss of a previously perceived moral culture. It seems we like to fantasize about previous years being more moral than today, and perhaps there were some some things that were, but we, uh, we, we long for a moral culture. Everybody longs for a moral culture. The, 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 some people consider morals one thing and some another, but everybody wants, wants to have morals based on values that they cherish. Typically, we tend to look for shortcuts, and, and we're the same thing here. We're looking for a shortcut to having a moral society, and that shortcut is to establish um, good moral behavior without discovering what what uh, what really makes good people so we just want good people and we we've had, we've historically tried different ways to make good people you know uh, rousseau back during the french revolution said that the problem with people is that we have too many restraints we have social constructs that keep people bound up and and the noble savage inside would be fine if we'd just turn him loose and not have any restraints. Uh, of course, the socialist and the communist would say, no, the issue is to eliminate personal initiative for the sake of society, and, and let's make everybody uh, equal in that sense, and, and that'll be a good society. Others have said through history we need to enforce the standards of civil behavior and religious beliefs by, by governmental force and by fear of loss of life or whatever. And so that's been a part of history as well. And, and but then there there's something there's something different. There was something new, something really uh unique when Jesus came on the scene and offered a gospel that features a kingdom where a loving savior praying for his enemies even during his death is the star. There's something about that that creates a culture that's different from all, all the others. But let, let's just talk a little bit about this, this idea of we need, we need good people. Truth is, one of the uh, downfalls of the contemporary church, the visible church, is that we've got too many good people there. That, that is, people who have found ways to behave in an acceptable manner and they are working on their goodness. And the problem is there are a lot of folk who don't feel like they're good. And therefore, they don't feel very welcome in those, those places. So what about this whole idea of we just need to be moral, merely moral? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. It's a fabulous book. Everybody should read it more than once. Uh, if you're normal, it'll take you more than once to get it. I think if somebody were to write a book describing contemporary Christianity, they would call it not mere Christianity, but mere morality. 
there's a sense in which morality and immorality come from the same heart. The immoral basically says, I, I will decide my own boundaries. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody sets laws around me. I do what I want to do. And my, my self-autonomy is valuable to my sense of worth and makes me feel like I have value. Therefore, nobody's going to take that away from me. On the other hand, morality can, be, can come from the same heart. The desire to matter, the desire to be significant, the desire to be worth something in your particular community. That was my case several years ago. Years ago, I was being interviewed on a national TV program, and after the interview, I was uh, getting to know the host a little bit. Uh, he had asked me a bunch of questions, so I asked him, what's your story? And he said, my story is that I was, I came to, to Christ early on, and then I went into religion for 15 years, and then someone prayed for me, and uh, I, since then I've been on a journey of discovering who God is and who I am, so forth. Uh, what, tell me your story again. And I said, my story is that I, I came to Christ early on, too. I joined the church, baptized, the whole thing, was sincere, but I went into morality, religion, if you will, for 15 years, and began to notice that that was not satisfying to God nor to me, and so since then I've been on a journey to discover the immorality of mere morality. You see, in, in my community, where I grew up with my family, my small community centered around the church, being good meant that you were valued. It, it was prized in, in my community, and therefore I wanted to be good. Therefore, I did not do behaviorally some of the things my buddies were doing as they uh, got drunk and gambled and slept around and whatever. I, I didn't do I'm not saying I didn't want to do those things. I didn't do them because I was being restrained by my desire to be to matter, to, to want to uh, be accepted, to be valued in my community. Actually, Oswald Chambers says it better than I ever could, so I'll quote him. He says, The nature of sin is not immorality and wrongdoing, but the nature of self-realization, which leads us to say, I'm my own God. This nature may express itself in morality or immorality, but it always has a common basis. My claim to my right to myself. That's what I'm talking about, that morality and immorality can come out of the same heart. Uh, the person is no better or, or worse than the other. Both of them are idolaters, and both of them are suffering under the enslavement to, to not having a proper sense of purpose or meaning. You see, God created us to matter. He created us to be significant. We're created in his image. Uh, we were created to display his glory, to work with him in, in, in the earth and subduing the earth. And a man was designed to matter. And, and once sin came in through mankind's choice to yield to, to the serpent's lie, then that got all confused. And since then, man has been trying to find his purpose, his meaning, his value, his worth 
through other means, through substitute means, and it simply doesn't work. Now, mere morality is very costly. It'll cost you in the areas of joy and peace and confidence and purpose. Several things. First of all, it, it sets impossible goals. Your, your goal is to be better. And so you you work to be better. You have standards that make you better, whether it's uh, reading your Bible, going to church, doing good deeds in the community, giving yourself to mission work, uh, not smoking, not drinking, not going, not uh, doing drugs, not uh, not not committing uh, outright adultery, wh whatever. We, our, our goals are to be pure, to, to, to be holy. We use all those biblical words. The problem with with getting better is if you if you're aware of being better, you are now have measured some something. There's some metric whereby you've measured, it, and now you're feeling superior to you where you once were, and you're conscious of your being better, but you still are conscious of you, and now your pride, the inevitable spiritual pride that comes from getting better replaces your sense of uh, needing to get better and you're worse but you don't know it and so you think you're better when actually you aren't any better so so it's an impossible goal uh, to, to to be good because good well, what does it mean the the goals that we set uh, are, are traps for us to fall in uh, the uh, another thing is that Mere morality inevitably adopts a delayed hope. There are many today who are absolutely sure that that nothing really victorious is going to happen until uh, Jesus appears again, until you know the end of time. We we have a hard time believing that there's any kind of of victory, uh, any kind of uh, rule of God now. It was the same problem with the Pharisees uh, and the religious leaders of Jesus' days, you remember. For, for years, for hundreds of years, Israel had lived with a hope that one day God was going to intervene in history and that there was going to come a kingdom. He would establish a kingdom that would rule over the other nations, the other kingdoms of the world. They had gotten it from many prophets, but primarily from Daniel. Daniel was a, uh, a prophet during the uh, exile, and he had this dream about the kingdoms of the world. And so he saw in this dream uh, a, a symbol of Babylon, and after Babylon would come Persia, Medo-Persia, and after Medo-Persia would come Greece, and after Greece would come Rome. And during the time of Rome, there would come rolling down the mountain a stone cut out without cut out without human hands uh, obviously a depiction of a sovereign a divine a heavenly stone and it would crush the kingdoms and set up a kingdom that was eternal and un, unstoppable uh, unquenchable uh, undefeatable and that uh, as Daniel sees, he sees that the, it, it is the Son of Man who comes to do that. He's the stone cut out, and that the kingdom he sets up will be his people. Well, taking that seriously, the uh, the Jewish prophets talked about a day when the kingdom would come. 
Now, they lived with a sense that the reason the kingdom had not come was because of their disobedience, the disobedience of their society. They were aware of the covenant that says, if you're obedient, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, you'll be cursed. Part of those curses would be other nations will rule over you, as, law, as well as natural things like hail and uh, wind and famine and stuff. And, and so uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had concluded that they were still uh, unqualified, disqualified for the blessings of God restoring the covenant because they had too many people in the society who were disobedient. So the Pharisees were very angry at sinners because sinners obviously were the ones who were keeping the society under a curse rather than in the blessing of the kingdom of God. But they believed it was coming one day, one day when they qualified, one day when they got better, one day when they got a sufficient amount of people being more obedient than disobedient, they were sure there would come a revival. Well, Jesus messed that up because he came right in the midst of their disobedience and said, the kingdom of heaven is here. Well, they were astounded, angry, frustrated that, that he would say such a thing, called, called him a blasphemer, and ultimately participated in his crucifixion. Why? Because Jesus had come in the middle and said, it's not based on your faithfulness, it's based on mine. And Jesus came to play Israel's role in living up to the requirements of righteousness, paying the penalty, taking the curse of their disobedience, and giving that to the people of God. So Jesus came to to do for them what they could not do, had not done themselves. But they were unwilling to receive that because they were convinced that nobody yet qualified. So they insisted on living in a delayed hope. They believed, and, and many still believe, that Messiah will come. There will come a kingdom, but it hasn't come. Jesus made it very clear that it has been inaugurated in his coming. He demonstrated by speaking to the winds and the waves, the nature, by casting out demons, dealing the power over Satan, uh, healing sickness, forgiving sin. Every way that that kingdom was superior, Jesus demonstrated it. And, and then he, he, he died to, to procure it, to confirm it. He was raised to affirm it. He sits at the right hand of the Father in the place that God had designed for mankind to sit. And he rules over that kingdom now through his delegates, that being his people. So, but those who, uh, those who, who, who are waiting for us to get moral enough that we can get blessed instead of cursed will keep on delaying the kingdom and the blessings and the grace of God until uh, enough of us get right. And that, that's a problem with the mere, mor the mere morality. Uh, there are those who believe that if we can get a sufficient amount of people in America or in Western civilization living right, then the, the curses will come off and the blessings will come on. Well, uh, we're, we're overlooking Jesus there because he is, uh, 
He's the one who comes in the middle of our undeserving and gives us what he deserves. The, the third thing that mere morality costs is it, it, it robs the scripture of its purpose and its joy. When the disciples finally learned to interpret scripture, they testified that their heart burned within them. You remember the story on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walks with them, interprets the whole Old Testament to them, shows them how it's all about the living word, him. And they, they, their hearts burn within in them. You see, if, if you're just moral, if you're, if you're just looking for better behavior, you think the Bible is about morals. In fact, many people tell us it's a moral handbook. It's, a, it's an instruction book. It's a book that we need to read to, to discover how to be better how to be better people. And so we read the stories in the Bible as moral stories. We, we read about Abraham and, and we say we need to be like Abraham so we can be blessed and have lots of camels and get the land and, and all of that. And the problem is if you read the story, you'll find out that Abraham uh, was, uh, well, he was anything but faithful to begin with. He First of all, he's an idolater, a polytheist, and then, and then even after God began to guide him, he lied about his wife and, and was willing for her to sleep with Pharaoh so that Abraham would save his life. I mean, he, you're talking about a faithless dude. Uh, he's not our model for faithfulness. Our model is the God who loved him anyway and captured him and was faithful to him. Well, you know, we, we like to like to like Joseph. Joseph is great great story and we tell our kids about tell our adults about it. you need to be like Joe don't be like his brothers be like Joseph and maybe you get to rule the world you get to handle all the riches of, of Egypt well Joseph didn't he was a narcissistic snot to begin a young boy had dreams and told his brothers he was going to they were going to bow down to him told his dad he was going to bow down to him and no, nobody liked the little rascal he uh, they were jealous of him and and uh, probably did what most of us would have done to him, threw him in a pit. At least they didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery. Yes, he wound up uh, being used of God, but it wasn't because of his goodness. It was because God didn't give up on him. Uh, God, God kept kept rescuing him out of tough situations and, and finally had him in a place where he could use him. And the, the hero in that story is not Joseph. The hero in that story is, is God who proves to us that he can take any circumstances and use them to fulfill his purposes. You know, we'll, we'll take Moses, be like Moses, great leader of the Old Testament. Well, well Moses was chicken, coward. You, you go through it. The story is, is about God. That's not about Moses. We tell our daughters about Esther. We go, you know, we need to be like Esther. If I perish, I perish. There's a, you came for the kingdom for such a time as this. And Every time you said, well, yeah, great, she wound up there. But Esther, prior to that, she was sleeping with a guy who's not her husband, a heathen king. And so uh, it's not about Esther so much as about a God who committed himself to Esther and said, I've chosen this one and I'm going to use her and I will not give up on her and, and she'll be there at the right time. It, it, it's about God. You know, you, you we, we go into the New Testament. Here. Well, we thank God we finally got some good goods. We got David. Well, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Uh, we, we got uh, got Paul. 
Well, he, yeah, read about Paul. He said he was the chief of sinners. Peter, Paul had to rebuke him for even after after things got going, he, he backed up on the gospel, compromised on the gospel. You see, the Bible it wasn't given to us to give us moral stories about our heroes. The truth is, if you could talk to any of the biblical heroes, they, they would only be telling you about one thing. They would all be talking to you about their weakness and how in their weakness God's grace was magnified and how God, through Jesus Christ, is the hero of every story and he's the only reason we brag. In fact, let's stop and read the text for the message, okay? Something I probably should have done a little earlier, but we got there. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For it is in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Uh, you know, we're made to be valuable. We're made to matter. And when we don't feel like we're mattering, we boast and we find things to boast in. We boast in our money. We boast in our intelligence. We boast in our knowledge. We, we boast in our power. We boast in our control. We boast in our health. We boast, in the, we boast that we've gotten better but, but he says, no, no, you need to understand this. You boast in knowing the Lord who magnifies steadfast love and righteousness and so forth. So if you read the scripture to get instruction only or, or, to, to, or become more moral only, and, and, and you're all excited about principles that help you get better, help you get more, and about formulas and, and stuff that you get out of there, you're, you're misusing the scripture, and the script. No wonder the scripture becomes boring to us, and it, it, it so it becomes so boring we start ignoring it, and then later we reject it, and and then later deny it, and that's what happens to a society who turns the Bible into something other than a revelation of the living Word of Jesus Christ. So, another thing that mere morality does is it it repels the needy. Jesus didn't have any kind words for the Pharisees and the leaders in John, excuse me, in Matthew 23. He has those woes there. And he talks about those leaders who put heavy burdens on people's shoulders and who, who make them twice a son of hell in, in an effort to get them converted over to their way. Uh, under their moralistic regime of, of trying to get people to act better according to the law that they loved and understood, they were, they were abusing people, suppressing people, oppressing people, manipulating people. It, it repels the needy. As I said earlier, the, the problem I think so, so many times with, a, with some churches is that there are too many good people there and good in in the worst sense of that word, they're good and they know they're good, and and nobody bad feels comfortable there because certainly nobody could identify with them. They think. Uh, so. So what's what's the truth about this whole thing? If you're not going to have morality, and by the way, I'm not advocating for immorality. I'm just saying there's something beyond morality. If, if if that's not the issue, if our behavior is not the issue, what is? Well, 
the kingdom of God produces not necessarily good people, but loved people. Now, it is true that loved people love, and loving people are good, in the very best sense of the word good. You see, the, <laughs> the reputation that God wants to get out about himself is that he loves unlovely people, that he forgives the unforgiven, that he accepts the unacceptable, that he, he cherishes that which is thrown away. He, he's different. He, he loves. He, he loves like only he can love. He, he loves long. He, he's willing to be patient with us in our stumbling and in our uh, rebellion and, and, and in our demand to be our own God. He's patient. But his love never fails. I remember praying for someone one time that's very precious to me and I was saying to God I I, I don't know how to pray I, I don't want them to ruin their life I don't want them to make decisions that's going to scar them forever and I don't want them to throw their life away and I, I, want, I don't want them to lose you and I, I felt like I heard the Lord say to me in a moment of answering a prayer and he was just saying uh, if my love can't capture them they can't be captured. And if I can't capture them, they shouldn't follow me. And it gave me great peace that, that it's not my job to control folks and, and bring them back or whatever, but it is my job to tell them the gospel. It is my job to pray. It is my job to love them. But 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 it's God's love that changes people. And, and if love won't change them, they can't be changed. And so you can put all the laws on them you want to, and you can put all the expectations on them. You can use all the guilt you want to. You can use all the manipulation you want to. You can give them all the wrong kind of motivations and rewards. You can promise them that they're going to have rewards in heaven. You can tell them that uh, that if they'll give, they'll get big houses and fine cars and all the clothes they can wear. You can tell them all that kind of stuff you want to, but I'm telling you, you won't change them. You won't change them until they acknowledge that God loves them in their love lessness in their unlovely state you see the goal for loved people is is not to be better their, their goal is to know him to be honest with him to all that shame and, and all that fear and all, all that dirt that that keeps them bound up and, and in the closet and behind the bush that because they know he loves them, they can be honest with him. They can, they can come out and tell the truth and know that it's not going to surprise him. He, he's not, uh, he's not shocked by our sin. He's not shocked by our perversion. He's not, he's not shocked that we've been a Christian fifty years and we still fail and we still have bad attitudes and we still do stupid things. Uh, he, he he never says, as some of our mothers or daddies might have said, I'm so ashamed of you. I thought better of you. You 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 disappoint me. Well, 
you may disappoint yourself, but God kind of already figured it out. He already kind of knew that, and Jesus has already covered that. So our, our goal is is to know him and to know and to understand him because, uh, as I have said on several occasions, using the story of the woman at the well, when Jesus talked to her and she she was wanting some water to satisfy her physical thirst and Jesus was offering her some water that would satisfy thirst that she had not even identified yet, Jesus makes this astounding statement to her. If you knew the one who was talking to you and you knew the nature of the gift, you would ask and he would give. I love that because Jesus didn't say you could ask. It's possible for you to ask. No, he said was, if you knew who's talking to you, you would ask. Here, here's what I'm telling you. If you know God loves you, you will change. Not maybe, not you could change, not not, not it'll be available to you. No, you will change. You, a loved person who's loved by God, an unloved, uh, an unlovely person, a, a sinner, a, a, a pervert, a, a, a dirty person who's loved by God the way God loves, it changes them. It changes. What changes about you? You become loving instead of hating, and you become you begin to boast in the one who loved you when you didn't deserve it, rather than boasting in yourself. You 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 start realizing that he is the center of your world and not you. You 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 realize that the great values in life are relational and not possessions. You realize that the greatest power you ever exhibit is forgiveness when you forgive and when you're forgiven you, you change you just change the, the, the deal however is uh, you don't measure your change you don't, you, you're not like so well I'm better well maybe but but I've noticed folks who are better are usually not aware that they're better they're more they're they're still conscious that they need to be loved and uh, they're still conscious of weaknesses and and they're still conscious of how how many areas they have been self-deceived, and and God is in His grace bringing them to light by bringing them truth. And and every time they they find victory in in the light, they it's like oh wow, and there's another one. And and so so they don't go around bragging about their humility. They they just keep on loving. God's Here's what we need to understand about Jesus. When when God wanted to express his full love, he sent his son Jesus. He had been showing his love throughout all the centuries, and it, was, it came in partial ways and whatever. But when God wanted to show what real love in life looks like, he sent Jesus. And, and let me just say this to you. That's the fullest love will ever be expressed. You say, what about when Jesus comes again? Well, in the Perusia, Jesus comes and our eyes will be open, but it, it won't be any more love. It won't be any more Jesus. It, it won't be any more in, in quantity. Uh, there won't be any more love than God has already expressed in Jesus Christ. So you, you don't have to wait till the end of time. You don't have to wait till, till the Perusia, to, to another appearing of Christ. You, you don't have to wait at all because the love of God has been expressed in Jesus Christ. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is through that death and that resurrection and the life given because of his ascension 
that we can know that love. And, and the, uh, the Spirit of God has shed the love of God in our hearts. So, so we are loved people, and, and loved people can love others. And, and when others are loved, the, even they start changing. Another aspect of this, of this uh, kingdom of God life is that the scriptures now are about the living word and not about behavior or being better or any of that stuff. The scriptures come alive. Folk, folk who, who, uh, who know about the kingdom and are embracing that life and are fascinated by being loved find Jesus on every page. They find him in every story. And, and they find that their praise is filled with stories of his heroics and not ours. And then the other thing about, about this life is that sinners can relate. Sinners could relate to Jesus. They relate to somebody who loves them. Sinners will relate to the church, to the people of God, when the people of God realize that they're not... They don't have to measure their goodness all the time, that they can focus on on being loved. You've probably heard the story of little Billy. In the first grade, he was in school uh, doing his work, but he was under stress, and he looked down, and that dreaded little puddle was under his feet, and he had he was paralyzed with embarrassment and shame. The teacher was headed his way, and she was going to see it, and no way for him to hide it, and the kids were going to laugh at him, and and uh, he was just petrified. What would he do? Just before the teacher got to his desk, Sally was walking by with a fish bowl full of water to change water in the aquarium, and she stumbled and spilled the water all over Billy and all over the floor, and the teacher and the rest of the students came and helped clean up the mess, never knowing that there were two messes there. That afternoon at the bus stop, Billy said to Sally, that wasn't an accident, was it? She nodded her head, no. He said, why did you do it? She said, it happened to me once. You see, when we're aware that we're all in the same boat, we, we, we all were in Adam. We were all hid behind that bush. We were all outside the garden. We, we were all trying to be, trying to matter. Some of us tried it in immorality. Some of us tried it in morality. Some of us tried it in being good. Some of us tried it in being bad. But we've all been there. When you know you've been there, and maybe it hadn't been long since you've been there, you have a hard time kind of looking down your nose and, and rejoicing when somebody else is being embarrassed about their own weakness or failure. God intends for his people to be attractive because Jesus is attractive to sinners. He's not very attractive to the mere morally moralist, but he's very attractive to sinners. And, and so if we're going to be about his work, if we're going to be about his life, if we're if we're, if, we're, if we're going to actually enjoy this thing, this life he's called, we, we can't settle for mere morality. We must have the life that Jesus gave, the life of love, the life that changes because of love. 
And so my encouragement to you today is give up your immorality and give up your mere morality and get a hold of a Jesus who loves you every day and keeps on loving you and loves you so much that you got so much you can't handle and you just got to give it away. Father, I pray that you would bless your word to the hearts of the people who hear. And let us never again be caught in the trap of trying just to be better so we'll be valuable. I thank you that you determined our worth when you paid for us. You have created us to be your sons and you redeemed us to be your sons and you've empowered us to be your sons and our value is in what you've done, not in anything we do. We rejoice in that. We boast in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.